You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus, that he is an anchor for our soul, an anchor for our life, an anchor for this moment we have. Lord, help us right now to fix our eyes on Jesus. We long that Jesus would be lifted up. We long that he'd be central. We long that we would fall away and that He would be seen and celebrated. Be at work now. Come like a rushing wind by your Spirit. That we'd be a people that would shine your light, declaring your goodness, living in your grace. We pray this and commit our time to you. In Jesus' precious name and all of God's people said with one super loud voice. Amen. 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 City on a Hill, you may take a seat. Thank you, Dave and choir. Can we put our hands together for these guys and for you guys for lifting your voices? So good, isn't it? To be able to lift up Jesus together, celebrating His name. Uh, If you are new or visiting, a very special welcome to you. My name is Guy Joy and privileged to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill. Uh, Really, really great that we can be together. Uh, Before we jump into God's Word, a few things just to head you guys up on. Number one, we have Easter coming in what? Less than a month, a few weeks ahead. So love you guys to be marking these dates in your diary. Uh, Make sure you're here to join us on Good Friday. Uh, Then we have baptisms on the Saturday and then together on Easter Sunday. Such a tremendously important time for us as God's people to stand together uh, with Christians around the globe, celebrating the life, 
the death and indeed the resurrection of Jesus. So let me encourage you to make that a priority that weekend. Let me also encourage you to be thinking and praying about who you could invite uh, to join you on Easter weekend. Also, just noting there that we have baptisms. Uh, if you have not yet been baptized, let me encourage you to take that leap of faith. Uh, we're running courses to help you find out more about baptism. Uh, and so you could let perhaps someone at the welcome team know about that or myself or Steph or anyone really uh, that you've seen today on our welcome team. We'd love to help you find out how you could be baptized and be part of that celebration. Also, uh, if you are new, we do have a newcomers night uh, coming up. We run these about once a month. Great opportunity uh, to get together with uh, new people who are part of City on a Hill, as well as meeting some of the staff team and hearing about the mission and vision of this church. Uh, interestingly, you'll see it's happening on a Sunday at 1.30 p.m. So normally they happen in the evening. This is happening on a Sunday afternoon. So uh, if you've got kids, family, you want to bring them along, more than welcome to join there as well. Hey, I want to send a special greeting to those of us who are, jo who are joining us online, as well as our team at uh, Ivers at our uh, City on a Hill headquarters. Love you guys. Can we thank the Lord for them? Appreciate that you are joining us today. Also, before I forget, fun fact, uh, in the last week of our series, we're coming up towards the end of First Peter, uh, we're going to be uh, setting apart a particular amount of time to do some Q&A because we've hit some really, really important topics throughout First Peter. Uh, and so I'd love you to, to come along to the last week in this series, but bring some questions with you. Uh, we're going to you know, set apart some decent time to respond to those questions. Uh, so that'll be a fun moment for us to get together. All right. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to go and grab that now and come with me to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Now, if you've been part of City on Hill for any number of months or years, you'll know that perhaps my favorite book next to the Bible uh, is, of course, Victor Hugo's Lay Miz. Right, by show of hands, who's read this book? No one. What? No, you've seen the movie. You haven't read the, read the book. The book is incredible. And you may know that I've referenced the book maybe one to 38 times as a preacher. Uh, it's a fantastic story, and it takes us really into the shoes of uh, an outlaw, Jean Valjean, uh, who's uh, really uh, suffered the, the brunt of an unjust system, and he, he goes to jail, and he escapes prison, and he's running as an outlaw, running from life, running from his problems, when all of a sudden he encounters God's unexpected grace, and this grace transforms him, and he's a changed man. Uh, he goes from, you know, running from God to surrendering his life to God. Uh, and he puts his hand to, to meaningful work. He establishes a manufacturing business that employs hundreds of people. He becomes the mayor of the town and really is this picture of, of, of uh, respect and, and integrity and, and truth. And of course, the, the value in his life, the beauty in his life is seen not only in what he builds, but, but really his sacrifice and his love. You know, here's this cry of an orphan girl who's stuck in a cycle of mistreatment and he, he essentially rescues her and adopts her as his own. And he cares for her and he, you know, all the way through her childhood and adolescence and teenage years into adulthood, he's there to, to care for her, to serve her, to protect her, to provide for her and indeed love her. And I want to draw your attention to one quote uh, that I just find so helpful, so challenging, so inspiring. And it comes at the end of his life. 
You know, after risking his own life to save Cosette's uh, fiance in the battlefield, he's at home and she's there and the fiance's there and he's slumped in his chair and his health is wasting away and death is really knocking at his door. But I want you to note what he says in this moment as he's looking back on his life. I want you to note these words. He says, it is nothing to die. It is dreadful not to live. It is nothing to die. It is dreadful not to live. Do you ever stop long enough to consider your life? Do you ever wonder if you're just kind of caught up on the treadmill of life or whether you're actually taking hold of life and living life in all its fullness? Here in God's word, the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb says so much to us about life. And what life is truly and ultimately about. And there's a sense in which as we read First Peter, we're getting a window into this life. And this life is not just theoretical or a big concept out there. It's, it's built into the, the everyday. And this is why Peter has, has been talking about, to us about how we are to relate to uh, governing authorities how we are to, 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 to relate as workers or students. And then last week we talked about, you know, the family and what, what it's to look like, what life is to look like when you're a husband or, or a wife. And here Peter continues that journey, helping you and me take hold of the life we were intended to live. So I want to make three observations from today's text. Uh, number one, if you want to live an authentic, true, beautiful life, Peter is going to tell us, the Bible is going to tell you, God is going to tell you, number one, speak the truth. Number one, speak the truth. So look with me to verse 10. Peter says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So it's helpful to know at this point that Peter is quoting a psalm from the Old Testament. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because it tells us something of the continuity that exists between the Old and New Testament. But it also helps us realize that this, this insight about life has stood the test of time. And you might like to, in your Bible or in your phone, underscore the word life. Whoever desires to love life, right? And, and you might want to underscore that because you may know that the ancient Greeks had different words to describe the different aspects of life. Uh, you may be familiar with the fact that there is a word bios in Greek, and that's used to describe our biological life, our, our physical existence. But when the Greeks wanted to talk about the quality of life, when they wanted to describe a life that was rich in meaning and transcendence, life in all its significance, they'd use a different word. 
It's the word zoe. I remember taking my kids to um, Costco when they first opened their doors in Melbourne. And you go through those, I mean, you go through those huge double doors and immediately you're just, you know, met with these huge TV screens, TV after TV after TV, right? I'm there with my kids and their eyes are lit up just by the size of these enormous screens. And then I remember next to the screens, we see these spa baths on display, right? And there's people in the photos of those spa baths drinking champagne and having a wild time. And then as you're absorbing all of this, you look down the aisles and you see that they've got people handing out free samples, right? There's little yogurts and little, you know, what are the dumplings and, you know, and they're all free. And I remember my eldest daughter at the time, she was nine, she turns to me and goes, wow, this is the life. Right? Nine years old and she found herself in Costco. Peter wants you to know not just existence, but Zoe. And interestingly, of course, the answer for that doesn't come necessarily in an American supermarket. (laughs) He gets very practical and says, whoever desires life and desires a good life, let him keep his tongue from evil and let let his lips from speaking Deceit. Now, on one hand, this is, this is really obvious, isn't it? It's self-evident to all of us that we shouldn't lie. Um, chances are, if you're a parent, you, you, you're not raising your kids and teaching them how to lie. You know, if you want to get ahead in life, son, daughter... <laughs> This is what you need to say to lie so you can get through the system. Not many of us are doing that. Why? Because we know how important truth is. We know the power of truth. We know that truth has a way of maturing us. We know that truth builds people up. We know in circumstances of chaos and confusion where things are fraying at the edges, it is truth in a situation or a relationship that helps us move through. It's light in the midst of darkness. It's clarity in the midst of confusion. And we also know conversely that deception and lies, it causes chaos. Now, I appreciate that the temptation to lie is ever-present because we know that sometimes we can dodge a few bullets or avoid some temporary loss if we lie or bend the truth. But in the end, I'm sure it's self-evident and obvious to us all that that lying, deception, half-truths, they cause hurt, to people that we care about. They rob relationships of trust. And in the end, they actually compromise ourselves, right? Isn't this is the parable of, of Pinocchio, isn't it? Right, this, this childhood story. And, and what's the story about? It's about Pinocchio wanting to be a real boy. He doesn't want to be artificial. 
He wants to be authentic. He wants to be real. And yet, of course, he, he stumbles along and, 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 and comes across these, these grang, uh, gangs of, of youth who, who are deceptive. And interestingly, their deception becomes his deception. Right, The same way that we learn our language or even our mannerisms from those who are around us. So Pinocchio learns this, this deception. And it's clear that he's embarrassed about that. He's, he's ashamed of that. And so what does he do? He, he lies about that. He seeks to, to cover it up. But of course, the story is that the more he does this, the more he lies, the less he becomes the person he aspires to be, the more he becomes the donkey. Now, of course, when it comes to our world and our lives and our language, we can't always see when someone is lying to us. And sometimes we can't even detect it in ourselves when we are lying. If you were to say, Guy, are you a liar? I'm going to say flat out, no, of course not. But how many times have I said, I'm fine when I'm not fine? How many times have I said, I can't when I mean I won't? How many times have I said, that was great when really I thought, nah? How many times have I said, I did when I didn't? Or I didn't when actually I did? Truth is the most beautiful language, but perhaps the hardest for us to learn. It's hard, isn't it, to be honest about our feelings. When you're in an environment, a group, a workplace, and everybody's saying this thing, but you know what the true thing is, it's very hard to speak truth. And it's really hard for us to be honest about our failings. And in part, it's very important when you think about this to recognize that truth-telling is profoundly spiritual. Truth-telling is profoundly spiritual, right? In in the Garden of Eden, um, the serpent comes to bring uh, disruption, disorder, brokenness. Right? He wants to get between Adam and Eve and their relationship with each other, their relationship with God. And yet, interestingly, he doesn't come you know, with tanks and guns. What does he do? He comes with deception and spin. Right? Just enough truth so they swallow it whole. Just enough lies to poison them from the inside out. And so what do Adam and Eve do when they're caught in their lie? They run, they hide, and they point the finger. Why? Why do we have so much difficulty owning our failings? Because truth requires that we not only say right things, but that our life matches up to those right things. Truth demands authenticity. But authenticity is hard. It requires maturity 
It it requires hard work. It requires boldness and courage. And so we internally become ashamed of the gap between our ideals, perhaps what we confess, and the reality of our life. We're ashamed by the distance between the life that we aspire to and the actual life that we live. In other words, we, like Adam and Eve, are ashamed of our nakedness. But this is where the gospel heralds good news. Because you remember what God does when he finds Adam and Eve in the garden? He clothes them. He clothes them. Are there consequences for your deceit, for their deceit, for our deceit? Absolutely. But God doesn't abandon us in our nakedness. He won't leave us in our shame. He sees us as we are and then draws us close. It's what I love, love, love about Jesus. He always knew people for who they truly were and what they truly had done. Jesus knew Zacchaeus was a tax collector enslaved to money. It was not just something that Jesus saw outwardly, but inwardly. He saw that inwardly. Jesus uh, knew the woman at the well who walked in her shame and he knew the fractured relationships that she was trying to work out. Jesus knew everything about her. Jesus knew everything about Peter, the one who was penning this very book. Jesus knew deeply and he knew that he would betray Jesus with a lie. And yet in knowing them completely, in knowing us completely, Jesus chooses to love us deeply. He chooses to love you deeply. Right in, in, I think it's John chapter one, when describing Jesus, what does he say? He says, Jesus, full of truth and grace. How beautiful is that? That when Jesus meets you, that when Jesus calls you to follow him, he's calling you to a life abounding in truth and full of grace. So the important question here for you and I is to ask, am I living a life of truth? Am I trusting that the grace and truth of Jesus is enough to take off the mask and embrace an authentic life. When I'm bombarded with the trickery of the evil one, will I take hold of God's word and stand firm in him? When I'm in the presence of a friend, a family member, a work colleague, will I use my words to challenge what is bad and affirm what is good? When I stumble in sin, will I... Rest in the mercy of God, confess my sin and pick myself up knowing that it's okay to not be okay. And when I'm alone, 
uncertain and unsure, will I trust in the promise of God who is working all things together for our good? To live a good life, you must speak truth. Second, to live a good life, to know the good life, you must pursue peace. So Peter goes on to say, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Right? So one of the paradoxes of life is accepting the reality that it is both incredibly beautiful and yet at the same time broken. Since the garden, the world and everything in it continues to reflect the glory of God and yet it is fractured. And it is fractured at every point. And so when Peter talks about evil, he's not talking about some abstract idea, but a reality that you and I are living in every single day. And the older I get, the more relentless this evil feels. You think about the last few years, you get through bushfires, you must contend with a pandemic. You get through a pandemic, you then got to contend with the flood. You get through a flood, then you got to contend with a war. You get through a war, then you got to, like, it just keeps going. And if those examples feel distant for you, just take a moment to reflect on the, the evil that so easily disrupts and fractures your own sphere. The selfishness in a relationship that takes something that was great and makes it bad. The unnecessary pressure in a family from a parent or maybe a boss at work. Betrayal between lovers, sickness, injury. I mean, we could just keep going on and on and on. Evil is an ever-present reality. And part of knowing the good life is accepting that, acknowledging that, recognizing that. But in the midst of that, we who are in Christ have a call. And that call is both to understand that reality, but take a decision and a path of peace. Right? Instead of succumbing to the evil in this world, instead of allowing this world to craft it, craft us in its image and make us bitter and vengeful and respond to evil with evil, you and I must pursue the courageous, sacrificial, costly path of peace. We are to be people of peace. And again, this is more than just a nice buzzword. Peter is appealing for a certain kind of behavior, right? Verse 11, being good, again, not just a belief, a behavior. We don't just think about being good. He says, do good, right? Do you notice that? Do good. In other words, we are generous. It's evident in your lives. We do pray. We do extend the hand of compassion and kindness. It's something we do. 
And clearly, you know, there are many different spheres of, of, of peace and the Bible explores the peace that we can have with God and the peace that we can have internally. But what it appears that Peter is talking about here is the peace we are to pursue among one another. The relationships that we share. We are to seek and we are to pursue peace. Now notice, please, that he doesn't say keep the peace. He says, seek and pursue peace. Some of us grew up being told to keep the peace. And what our parents meant by that is you had to walk on eggshells and never offend anyone. Peacekeepers are those who often remain silent, avoid conflict and say yes when they really mean no. Peacekeepers often apologize for everything, even when it's not their fault. It can look endearing, can't it? It often feels very Christian, but ultimately it just brushes issues under the carpet. You are not called to keep the peace, but to be someone who pursues and seeks peace. And a person who pursues and seeks peace is not allergic to conflict. Uh, They're not afraid to bring things into the open. They speak the truth in love. And that's because peace is not merely the absence of conflict. It's the presence of reconciliation. It's the presence of unity. It's the presence of harmony. And here's the rub. If you want to live a good life, it's going to be very important that you have deep, rich, honest relationships It's incredibly important, right? When God looked at Adam, he said, it's not good that you are alone. We're made in the image of God and part of our image bearing of God is to be in relationship. And there are countless studies and anecdotes I could share that have shown how foolish it is for a man or a woman to build their life apart from genuine, meaningful, significant relationships. You need to have good relationships in your life. And yet, of course, in saying that, I know that's difficult. And the difficulty here is not just because of time or opportunity. Often it's a result of sin. Sin fractures relationships. Look at the Garden of Eden again. They are distant from one another. Adam and Eve start blaming one another. You think about good relationships in your life. Sin, when it enters in, comes with pride and insecurity and it it creates that distance that we were made for relationships. Uh, I remember a guy um, in my extended family, and for the sake of the story, we'll call him Steve. Steve uh, isn't a Christian, but always appeared to have a very decent life. Very secure life. He's married, he's got kids, he had a really good job. But then he had a falling out with his um, business partner. And the simple things were said in the midst of the fray of all of that. Uh, Nothing out of the ordinary of normal life, but he took it personally. And I remember him, you know, being in a house and him saying quite boldly and confidently, I won't forgive. And then he doubled down on that and said, When anyone does me wrong, they're done. I don't forgive them. That's the end. 
right? And he, and he said it confidently and boldly as if that's what made him strong and secure as a person to be that de- decisive. And maybe there is some kind of appeal to that, but actually I was there listening, thinking, I wonder how this will play out. I wonder how this will work as an approach to life. And it was sad to see over the years that followed him continue to give into that pride. Um, He had a falling out with his brother. Again, nothing unusual about that. Cut him out of his life. He then had a disagreement with another boss, lost that job, lost that career, walked away from that. He then faced difficulty in his marriage and instead of pursuing reconciliation, that was done. He then didn't like how some of his kids were responding to him and so he cut them out of his life. It's just tragic to see a system play itself out with such hardness of heart. We who are in Christ have to be different we who are in Christ can't give in to the temptation to cling to our pride, but instead must humble ourselves and pursue peace. And of course, this, this requires hard work. This has to be practical. For example, if you're to be a person of peace, then it's really important that you're attentive to the moments in a relationship or a friendship where fractures are beginning to emerge. And instead of brushing that under the carpet and ignoring that, you're attentive to that. You acknowledge that. You're aware of that. And you can express that. And as you share that with a friend, you need to also work hard to own your responsibility. Right? I remember someone saying, well, I've forgotten his name. But even if you're 5% responsible, take 100% responsibility for that 5%. If you're going to pursue peace, you need to own your part of the problem. Not making excuses, not brushing it under the carpet, acknowledging that, acknowledging the ways that your own sin have brought brokenness into this relationship, acknowledging the hurt that that caused, sharing the learnings you have from that and the change you will make. So, so important that we are a people who practice peacemaking. We're seeking it. We're pursuing it. And it has to be evident in this church, right? If we're to be a light on the hill in a world of chaos and confusion, we need to be a people who can cross the line and and share love and pursue peace with one another. Christians, we speak the truth. We pursue peace. And third, you ready for the final point? Alice's. Yeah. Third and final point. We fear no man or woman. Look to verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So here Peter asks us to consider a question. 
Who is there to harm you if you're pursuing good? The answer, of course, is not no one. The truth is, is if you put yourself out there and pursue a good life, there will be no shortage of opposition. If you speak the truth, if you're a person who pursues peace, if you stand for Jesus, you will come under fire, right? Peter's not ignorant to that. He's lived that. He's often been uh, ridiculed. He was ostracized. He was beaten. He was sent to prison. In the end, he was crucified upside down. When it comes to the good life, Peter isn't promising you some earthly protection. He's just helping you recognize God's acceptance and affirmation, right? That no matter what people say about you or what they may do to you, God is on your side. God is for you. He sees you. He hears your prayers. And as Peter says, you are blessed. Right Now, blessed is not some cheap hashtag you put on the bottom of a social media post. The blessing of God speaks of our deep satisfaction in a God whose approval and love and acceptance reigns. We are blessed when we know that we are secure in God. We are blessed when we know that the life, death and resurrection and righteousness of Jesus is ours. And so in Jesus, we are a blessed people. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? This is where a Christian, a genuine truth-telling, peace-pursuing believer need not worry, need not be troubled, need not fear. Instead of being enslaved to the approval of this world, you step out with courage. Instead of worrying about what he said or what she thinks, you stand secure. Instead of second-guessing your life, holding back in fear, The Christian is the person who pursues a life of faith. Now, fear is not all bad. Fear can be a helpful gift from God uh, to help us, guide us and protect us from unnecessary harm. But there is, of course, an unhealthy fear, isn't there? A fear that enslaves a person, a fear that squashes ambition, a fear that stops us stepping out into the fullness of following Jesus and living the life he has called us to live. The key is that we harness those fears and use them to propel us forward in the kingdom of God. If you remain where you are, you not only miss out on the thrill of adventure, You don't grow as a person. You don't develop as a person. Stepping out in faith grows a person's confidence and allows you to discover new parts of yourself and new things about the God you were made to serve. I'm not sure who originally penned this, but I found it to be a helpful perspective. The writer says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. 
Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. This is where it's important once more to surround yourself with courageous and godly people. People who can spur you on in the journey of faith. You know, maybe you really want to invite somebody to church and yet you fear their disapproval. You fear the rolling of their eyes. You're going to need good gospel men and women in your life to encourage you in that, to pray for you in that. Um, Suppose you're wanting to do something very courageous and forgive somebody who has hurt you. You want to be that person who, as a result of today, goes and pursues peace, but that frightens you. You're going to need courageous men and women, gospel men and women in your life to, to help you in that, to pray for you. Maybe find somebody who's already crossed that path and can help you take those steps. If you're wanting to start speaking the truth, maybe you know you've been living a bit of a lie. Maybe you know you're easily uh, succumbing to temptation and deceit. You want to surround yourself with truth tellers, gospel men and women who remind you of your true identity, remind you of the importance of being truthful. And of course, the key here in overcoming any fear is to keep our eyes and our heart fixed on Jesus. That's the key. If you want to live a bold, faith-filled life, if you want to go to places you didn't think you could go and to develop things within you that you didn't know, you must be a person who keeps your eyes on Jesus. Think for a moment about Peter standing on that boat with Jesus standing on the water, calling him out. It's dark, it's stormy, it's cloudy, there's rain, and Jesus is calling him forth. And I just love how Peter is this guy who keeps his eyes on Jesus. He steps out trusting Jesus. He steps forward with a big vision of who Jesus is. He's not a perfect guy. We know that he sinks. We know there are moments of failure. We know like us all that there are times that he would regret and things that he didn't get right. But here is Peter keeping his eyes on Jesus. And it's amazing when you think about how God uses Peter. The first person after Pentecost to preach and then to see thousands of people come to know Jesus is Peter. Peter's penning a book in the Bible. Peter was there to help preach the gospel, to plant churches. In the end, to give his life in a very sacrificial, Jesus-centered way. What enabled him to live such a rich, bold, courageous, compassionate life? He had a clear vision of who Jesus is. I love this quote by J.I. Packer. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a, big, having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? 
This is what makes the gospel good news. You see what Peter says in verse, I think it's 18, if we can bring that up. It says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here we have such a succinct summary of the good news of the gospel. Christ, God's Messiah, promised King, he suffered in life and on that cross, he suffered and he did it once for sins. Whose sins? Peter says, if we can keep that up, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? The righteousness speaks of the law of God, his call on us all to love him with all our mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet we all know that we've fallen short of that righteousness. And so we are unrighteous. And yet Jesus steps onto the stage of human history as the righteous one, perfect, pure in every way, always speaking truth, always pursuing peace, always surrendering himself to the bigness and magnificence of God. He is righteous. And yet on that cross, he suffered once for sins. He paid the price in full. He said, it is finished. Why? Verse 18, that he might bring us to God. That's the glory of the gospel. If you want to live life, the transcendent, the Zoe life, God must reign supreme at the very center of your life, in your relationships, in your truth-telling, in your pursuit of peace, in all spheres of your life. God must reign supreme. He is glorious. He is good. And the gospel says, Jesus has made a way. I don't know if you were here last week, but um, as the band comes up, we, we heard uh, Leo, uh, a testimony from Leo. Uh, he was baptized in, in December uh, last year. And it was just, wasn't it moving just to hear him share how God had worked in his life? You know, he, he attends an Easter service here and God meets him in a very personal and powerful and compelling way. And he decides to fully commit to God, decides to surrender himself to God, to follow Jesus. And he's kind of reflecting on the lockdowns of 2021. Leo says this, even though I was lonely in a physical sense, there was something new. I felt God really filled a void in my heart. And so he's baptized into the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. His new life, His victory for all. And Leo says, God has given me a sense of purpose. Having relationship with God is the main thing. Just the knowledge that I have a Father who loves me and knows me, a cornerstone and foundation that gets me through the day. I too have a purpose in His kingdom. I'm a servant. I help people and love people. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the call, the life that Peter presents to you today? You know, maybe you're here and you've been brought along with a friend or family member and you've just been exploring Jesus. It's no accident you're here. God has placed eternity on your heart and every day that bell keeps ringing. You were made for Jesus, made for a glorious life. 
And God loved you so much that He'd send Jesus so you could come home to Him. And so if you're not yet a believer, then today I pray that you take that step of faith. Don't hang back in fear. Step forward into the life that God has for you. If you want to talk with me, I'd love to chat about that. Catch up for coffee. You want to talk with your friend who brought you along about what it would mean to actually follow Jesus and make him central. We love you. I want to serve you and encourage you. If you want to get baptized, you have a great opportunity to do that this Easter. A better way to declare the life you have in Christ than to take that plunge. Perhaps you're here today and you are a Christian. You've been following Jesus. I know for myself, as I go through this text, I'm, I'm personally challenged to grow and to mature. You know, maybe you're here and you're someone who's, who's good at the truth-telling part, but there's opportunity to grow in peace with others. Or maybe you're really comfortable pursuing peace, but there's aspects of your life and your faith that you know are squashed by fear and insecurity. God wants us all to grow in Him, to love Him, to pursue Him. So I want to do is give you guys a moment wherever you are just to reflect on what we've heard today. Maybe it's a time to confess of your own uh, sin and areas in your life that you have fallen short. And importantly, to bring that to the Lord and to ask for His help. So I'll give you a moment to do that and then Dave and the team will lead us in some final songs. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.